This is Partners in Practice, a weekly series dedicated to the evolving field of the advanced practice clinician. Here is your host nurse practitioner, Mimi Secor. Alzheimer's disease is the second most feared illness after cancer. Known as the epidemic of our century, currently over 5 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's, one diagnosed approximately every 70 seconds with estimated numbers tripling by the year 2050, a mere 40 years from now. We currently have three separate and very serious epidemics, including obesity, diabetes, and Alzheimer's disease. And now we have new research linking obesity and diabetes to an increased risk for both dementia and Alzheimer's disease, further compounding these problems. You're listening to Partners in Practice. Welcome. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, your host, and with me today is nurse practitioner Susan Scanlon, founder and CEO of Dementia Connection in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. And today we are discussing groundbreaking research about new risk factors and new ways to lower dementia and Alzheimer's risk. Hi, Susan. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Mimi. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Wonderful. Thanks. Well, to begin, can you just tell us a little bit about this new concerning research linking obesity and diabetes to dementia and Alzheimer's? What's the connection and why should we be so concerned? Well, Mimi, just recently in the journal Biological Psychiatry, a meta-analysis was published. They basically looked at all the studies relating weight and or diabetes to dementia. Profeno and colleagues noted that and I'm going to quote them, obesity and diabetes significantly and independently increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease, end quote. So, Mimi, distinct from obesity's and type 2 diabetes' impact on late-onset Alzheimer's disease, we're not talking about the early type of Alzheimer's disease that occurs with onset before age 60. This is the late type that occurs after 65. You know, we've got that to contend with. We've got obesity and type 2 affecting late-onset Alzheimer's. But in addition to that, we've known for some time as, as primary care providers that obesity and diabetes can lead to strokes and vascular dementia, which is the second most t- common type of dementia. So basically, we're talking about a double dementia epidemic here. Not good news. This is all so new to pretty much all the clinicians of the world. What is the relationship between body weight and brain structure? Well, as body size increases, it seems that the research is showing us that brain size measured by cerebral volume decreases. A new Framingham study of over 700 healthy middle-aged people compared neuroimaging versus body size using several different factors. BMI, body mass index, was one. Waist circumference, you know, our waist measurement, was another. Plus, they also looked at CAT scans of subcutaneous and visceral belly fat, you know, subcutaneous abdominal fat and visceral belly abdominal fat. What this fascinating research study showed was that as waist circumference increased, BMI increased, and both sub-Q and belly fat increased, guess what happened to cerebral volume? It decreased. Mm-hmm. And Mimi, you may want to, I don't know if you might want to guess at what the strongest predictor of less brain volume was, but it was circulating around about two months ago on the internet. There was some talk about beer belly dementia studies circulating yeah, on the exactly. internet. So it was visceral belly fat was the strongest predictor of less brain volume in these subjects. I think of the airport where you just see everybody and anybody, and it just uh, you think of those beer bellies. Uh, what does type 2 diabetes also play in terms of its role in cognitive function? Well, a PTUCLA study looked at neuroimaging of gray matter and white matter volumes 
in dementia-free. These people did not have dementia. 94 dementia-free elders. They looked at body mass index, like the other study, BMI, and compared it to brain changes. And these researchers found that three factors were related to brain atrophy. The first was increased BMI. Once again, bigger body, more brain atrophy. Number two, higher insulin levels. And third was a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Now, it was interesting because they found that cerebral atrophy still occurred if only the BMI alone was high, even if there was no diabetes present. So you really worry about that muffin top. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Susan, what specific types of dementia are related to type 2 diabetes? There's five major types of dementia, and there's many, many other types, but the leading ones are the ones that are most related to type 2 diabetes. First of all, we have Alzheimer's disease, which encompasses probably 60 to 70% of all dementias. And second, we have vascular dementia, which is dementia due to cerebrovascular disease, diseased brain vessels or, you know, anoxia due to brain vessels. Basically, type 2 diabetes is related to the two most common types of dementia. Now, we now are finding out through research studies that there's a greater relationship between Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia than we originally thought. Some of the researchers are now even thinking that vascular dementia may precede. It may actually be like a prelude to Alzheimer's disease. We now know that it's not as pure as we thought perhaps 10 years ago. We used to think people either had Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia. Um, Now we're finding there's people with mixed dementia, which is one brain having more than one type of dementia in it. The most common combination, of course, being Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. Fascinating. You know how this is even more fascinating because my mother-in-law, who's 88, has been told she has mixed dementia. So this is near and dear to me. I'm listening with great attention, Susan. So thank you for sharing all of this with us. So can a diabetic develop Alzheimer's disease without getting vascular dementia first? Yes, Mimi. Basically, what studies are showing us, there's been more than 12 studies looking at the direct relationship between type 2 diabetes and Alzheimer's. Most of those studies have shown a positive relationship. And one of the strongest studies in that group was the Swedish twin study. It looked at more than 13,000 twins. And what they found in that study was the twins who became diabetic during their middle life, during their mid-years, had a greater risk of developing Alzheimer's than twins who got diabetes later in life, say after age 65. That must have been a heck of a study to conduct with over 13,000 twins. Right. So what exactly is happening inside that type 2 diabetic's brain to predispose them to Alzheimer's? Do we know that? Yes. The Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, Cynthia Carlson, uh, wrote a fascinating article recently exploring this entire mechanism. What Cynthia talked about was elevated levels of glucose and insulin actually can contribute to the formation of amyloid beta plaques. Now, A-beta, as it's abbreviated, amyloid beta plaques, A-beta, are the classic plaques found in the Alzheimer's brain. These are the plaques that Dr. Alois Alzheimer, 100 years ago, found under his microscope in the first documented patient with Alzheimer's disease. It's Mm -hmm. believed that excessive insulin secretion may result in botched breakdown of these A-beta protein plaques. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Partners in Practice. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, and I'm speaking today with nurse practitioner Susan Scanlon about new risk factors and new research on reducing dementia and Alzheimer's risk. So, Susan, it sounds like too much brain insulin is toxic to those neurons. Is that right? 
Exactly. Insulin-degrading enzyme, also known as IDE, becomes disabled. IDE is also a major regulator of amyloid beta, A-beta. So we end up with a decreased clearance of A-beta from the brain. In autopsies of people who have had both Alzheimer's and diabetes, Mimi, there are more amyloid beta plaques than someone having Alzheimer's without diabetes. So having those two diseases predisposes one to having more of those toxic amyloid beta plaques, classic of Alzheimer's disease, in one's brain. Tell us more about the effects of insulin on the brain. I think this is new for a lot of clinicians. Sure. Well, what we're finding is that hyperinsulinemia can cause Alzheimer's independent of cardiovascular disease. Insulin receptors exist in the very first areas hit by Alzheimer's disease, the entorhinal cortex and the hippocampus. So, you know, the receptors are right in those areas that are first hit by this nasty illness. So, Susan, what can we do preventatively as clinicians to save brains from these effects that you're describing? I think we need to move much more quickly than we have been moving. Typically, Alzheimer's and diabetes don't get picked up at the earliest phases in primary care so that... Now we're even finding out that even in the pre-Alzheimer's phase, which is known as MCI, and many clinicians may not be familiar with that term, MCI stands for mild cognitive impairment. It's that gray zone between normal aging and early Alzheimer's disease. So even in that phase, type 2 diabetes doubles the risk for cognitive impairment, and this has been found in elderly women. The risk for MCI, mild cognitive impairment, increases with each glycosylated hemoglobin point elevation. Mm-hmm. So basically, NPs, physician assistants, and all primary care providers really, really need to reinforce the fact that the brain is an extremely vital organ to protect in diabetes. Is there a way that we can test for mild cognitive impairment? We do have some tests for myocognitive impairment, some clinical tests. One of my favorites is the St. Louis University Mental Status Test, and you can Google that, and it should come up. We're right to the Washington St. Louis University. Or just go to my website, DementiaConnection.com, send me an email, and I'd be happy to get that for any of our listeners. Another test that I, as a member of American Association for Geriatric Psychiatry, hear a lot about is the MOCA, Montreal Cognitive Assessment, the MOCA test. They are both much more sensitive for MCI than the classic mini mental state, the Folstein MMSE, which many primary care clinicians use as the measure of Alzheimer's disease. They pick up patients with MCI much, much earlier than the Folstein mini mental state exam would. What about sharing some primary care clinical pearls to help patients reduce their dementia risk? Well, we need much tighter control than we have in many of our patients now, and we've really got to work on compliance too. We have really got to tighten up glucose, lipids, and blood pressure, and work on other things like smoking and excessive alcohol intake. You know, bad lifestyle bad lifestyle can certainly increase one's risk for dementia. And even the Alzheimer's Association really has a strong push. You know, what's good for the heart is good for the brain. What's bad for the heart is bad for the brain. So sometimes what I would suggest, if you have patients that are noncompliant and they just don't really understand how vital it is to the brain, write on a piece of paper for them to visit the Alzheimer's Association website at alz.org. They can type Alzheimer's Project in the search box. And ask ask your patients to watch this fascinating PBS series, or at least part of it, 
And then when mm-hmm. they come back, ask them if they're interested in lowering their risk for Alzheimer's disease, if not for themselves, for their children or for their grandchildren, because it's so devastating on family members. Is there a difference in the degree of preventability in age-related variations of Alzheimer's? Yeah, Mimi, I think there is. Now, I'm even seeing late-onset Alzheimer's disease in the literature abbreviated as LOAD, LOAD, and it certainly is a load on families. But we know early-onset Alzheimer's disease occurring before the age of 60 has a greater genetic component than the late-onset Alzheimer's disease. I would venture to say that early-onset Alzheimer's disease is probably not amenable or as amenable to cerebrovascular risk factor modification. However, late-onset Alzheimer's disease, and we know this is a disease that occurs more frequently as one gets older. We're looking at uh, rates of up to 35 to 40% once people get over the age of 85. So this type of Alzheimer's disease occurring with onset after 65 certainly has a lot more wiggle room for risk reduction than the early-onset type. Can exercise help prevent dementia or Alzheimer's? Well, funny you should ask, because uh, hot off the press from the recent International Conference on Alzheimer's Disease in Honolulu are results from a Framingham cardiovascular study looking at well over 1,000, 1,200 people. Dr. Zaldi Tan and colleagues found a 45% decrease in dementia for those who were really, really exercise gurus, moderate to heavy exercise for an hour a day, which is very difficult for most of us. But he also found a 45 increase in the risk of dementia for those who were totally sedentary. So basically, we have to find you know, a happy medium in there for lowering our risk. What do you suggest we advise our advanced practice clinicians to do now to address these ticking time bombs? Well, once again, we really, really do have to stress prevention, and I think nurse practitioners do a fabulous job with that, and many more primary care providers, too, because we know the effects of chronic illness, and we know this is not how most old people want to spend their golden years. As far as exercise, reducing risk, we really need to talk to people about the effect of not doing these good things. You know, if you don't exercise, you're going to have more oxidative stress in your brain and it's going to damage your nerve cells. And exercise may actually even decrease amyloid beta. We're seeing some studies that those toxic plaques can be affected by exercise. Exercise, we know, causes new nerve growth. We didn't know that many years ago. We always thought brain cells die off as you get old. But now we know you can exercise and cause neurogenesis new neuron growth. It also improves brain vascularization, which would be huge, like I said, in in the prevention of vascular dementia. Thank you. You've taught us so much about these risk factors today. Thank you, Susan, for coming on the show. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you. I know that our listeners learned so much from you today. And just do it. You've been listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM160. You can download this program and any other program in our library at ReachMD.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.